If you would, come with me to the book of Hebrews, the second chapter, Hebrews 2. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. And I do encourage you, whether it's on your phone or you have a physical Bible, always go to the trouble of finding that text. It helps you remember it if, besides hearing it, you actually see it. Hebrews, the second chapter, beginning at verse 5 and reading through verse 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of our God. Father, grant to us now that we see this and hear this rightly. May Christ be exalted and may we be humbled. Do for us, Father, what you have promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen. The matter of living in this world is always something of a challenge. Far too often, I think we go through life without any thought, and I think that shows up a great deal. And if you will, some of the apparent contradictions as we live. The joyful anticipation of infants, the sorrow of death. Just this week, our member Harry Matthias passed away. Do you think of pray for his family? Pray for uh, Diana. She's at, been hospitalized herself yesterday, last night. And part of the privilege, if you will, of being a shepherd, a pastor, is uh, you see both ends of this spectrum. There have been times I've gone to the hospital to visit somebody that's dying, and in the same hospital go down to meet a new infant. And then we look at humanity, and we're not exactly sure what to make of humans. Are we noble or ignoble. Recently I read about a fellow traveling in, on the LA Metro subway and he observed a woman in a wheelchair and of course she's in the center of the car, that's where her chair has to be, and he said, I watched three separate young men all tatted up with gang tattoos without her saying a word take turns holding her wheelchair so it didn't move around on her. And his 
commentary after that was, my faith in humanity is restored. Well, I think that's a grand thing, but I think it's probably a little more sentimental than real. Because we also read about human beings who traffic in other human beings. There's this extraordinary range from glorious nobility to horrid depravity. How can this be? What is going on with us? We know a number of our childhood stories in which a prince or princess has their true identity hidden or unknown. Often they are supplanted by some wicked counselor or official. They're often reduced to poverty and obscurity. Hopefully, if it's a happy ending, the dethroned find their way to the throne. In Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, children enter Narnia through a wardrobe. Many of you have read the story. But by the end of the book, they have become kings and queens in Narnia because they serve Aslan, the Christ figure, who rules. Now the stories actually have a basis in ultimate reality. We are not all we are supposed to be. G.K. Chesterton far smarter than me, said it this way, whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. Now, as we read this text this morning, the writer had just before this, in the first four verses, if you will, afflicted the comfortable. He warns about the dangers of neglecting this great salvation. But then... In these verses, it's like he offers us comfort in our affliction. So let me ask the question another way. Have you ever felt insignificant? You don't matter? Now, some of you are a bit full of yourselves, and you don't even want to do with what I just asked. And some of you are saying, that's my mantra. That's all I live by. I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I'm nothing. I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I'm nothing. I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I'm nothing. Unless you on a little hint, that's not humility. That's pride masquerading as humility. Hmm. If you've ever wondered if there's more to being human than you've experienced, the answer is yes. Francis Schaeffer, who in my own life, shaped so much of my understanding of living as a Christian in this world. In his little book, Escape from Reason, said this about man. So man, being made in the image of God, was made to have a personal relationship with him. Man's relationship is upward and not merely downward. If you're dealing with 20th century people, and I'm going to edit here, even 21st century people, this becomes a very crucial difference. Modern man sees his relationship downward to the animal and to the machine. 
The Bible rejects this view of man. On the side of personality, you are related to God. You're not infinite, but finite. Nevertheless, you are truly personal. You are created in the image of the personal God who truly exists. Brothers and sisters, let me stop for a moment and say to you, any other thing that's taught you is going to impede that and mess with that whole understanding. There are certain worldviews that you cannot import any part of them without doing huge detriment to your understanding of life. You're made in the image of God. Now, that said, depending on the day, I think all of us find humans and their behaviors both a cause of hope and a cause of absolute despair. How many times in the last few weeks have you seen a news article and said, I just don't get it. How in the world? How does somebody say that? How does somebody do that? How does somebody get away with that? My friends, the author here, as he is extolling the greatness of Jesus Christ, is also telling us something about ourselves. Christ recovers your lost destiny. Christ recovers your lost identity. Who and what you are supposed to be lost to you is now regained for you by Jesus Christ. Let's look first at this. Humanity's destiny is declared here. From verse 5 through the first part of verse 8, for it was not to the angels or to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. I remind you that those to whom the author is writing were being tempted to forsake the Christian faith, to forsake the exclusive nature of Jesus' claims, to go back into Judaism. And some of them actually had an idea that Maybe Jesus was just like an angel. He was like Michael or Gabriel and was owed certain veneration, if you will, but that he is not God in the flesh, but merely angelic. Now, what we see here, though, is the author is saying to us, and notice it begins with four, and the four connects it to the previous paragraph. First of all, believers, you can't escape judgment for neglecting such a great salvation and go back to the law mediated by angels. Second, rule over this world isn't given to angels, but to humans through Jesus Christ. When he talks about subjected the world to come, what world is he referencing here? Well, he doesn't use the typical Greek word cosmos, which means world system. He doesn't even use the word ion, which means the ages, 
But he uses the term oikumene, which referred to the inhabited earth. He did not subject that world to come to angels. So angels again here are pointed out, but they are pointed out as being limited in both power and role. They do not have authority in the world that is to come. And only to an extent even in this world now. Now angels are involved. And brothers and sisters, please hear me when I say this. Now I have lived my life watching folks occasionally, I'd say get a little too spiritual in a bad way. And, and what I mean by that is every single thing that happens that isn't a good thing, they think a demon did it. And every good thing that happens, obviously it's an angel or somehow the Lord did it. And certainly the Scripture says every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven. But if we're not careful, in overreaction to that, we will turn this into, in essence, a dead world where there are no spiritual beings at all. Angels are engaged in this world. Satan is even called the prince of this world. In Daniel, you have the reference to Daniel fasting and praying and waiting for an answer. And the angel that comes to him talks about a battle that he engaged. And the battle was with an angel that was over a nation. Even in Ephesians 6. Paul, when he talks about spiritual warfare in the text, reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Can we talk? Come here, son. Next year's an election year. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but brothers and sisters, if we don't actually affirm, believe, and live like this, that the problem is not flesh and blood, the problem, principalities, powers of darkness in this I run into far too many Christians who are ready to be pugilists. They're ready to go to fisticuffs over elections and worldly powers. And I'm, I'm just here to tell you, my friends, if you're not very, very careful, you land in a place the Lord never intended for you to land. Even if, brethren and sisters, let me say this as plainly as I know how, I think even if we won several elections for the sake of morality and righteousness in years coming, it would not necessarily change ultimate directions. Hmm. The fall, in one sense, as we think about angels and their limited authority, I heard a brother theorize about this. One brother thinks that part of Satan's motivation in tempting Adam and Eve was that he knew the Lord intended to exalt these creatures of clay to a place above him. And he was going to destroy that possibility. So what's humanity's position and purpose? Now the writer, it's intriguing, is it not? He says it's written somewhere. Well, can I let you in on something here? I, I don't think it's because he didn't know David wrote it. I think he's trying to say to you, this is the Lord's word. 
He wanted them to understand it's really God who wrote these words and is fulfilling them. This is all from the eighth psalm. If you look at Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. The, the psalmist at the first verse speaks of the Lord, the greatness of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place. And in that eighth psalm, what a glorious thing. First, the vision of Almighty God, exalted above all. And then looking at humanity and saying, you made us a little lower than the angels, that we should ultimately be exalted. My brothers and sisters, have you considered the vastness of the universe? If you, let's try it this way. If you wanted to try to get to the nearest group of stars, Alpha Centauri, from Earth, and you could fly a commercial jet, okay? A commercial jet from here to those stars, it would take five million years to get there. Does vast begin to register? All right, how about another scale? If an inch in this scale equals a million miles, where would you, where would you end up if an inch was a million miles, and you do this in terms of scale, you left Springfield, you start traveling, every inch is a million miles. How far would you have to travel comparatively to get to the Alpha Centauri. Let you on a little secret here. Almost Chicago. Almost Chicago. Now you can check my math. It's not my strength. I played with a calculator a lot yesterday trying to figure this out. And, and when you, you, you're figuring a light year is this many trillion miles and it's going to take how many trillion miles is that? So how many light years and then doing conversions some of you mathematicians are already suspicious of me. Um, what I'm saying, my friends, is the vastness of the universe is a staggering thing. And you know, you hear people, well, if we, can, if we can conquer traveling at the speed of light, this becomes more reasonable. Sure. Problem is, the human body can only take so much pressure, G-force, at a time. It would literally take hundreds of thousands of years to get up to speed without killing the passengers. And then you'd have to add on the end, the slowdown would have to be the same rate to keep them from dying on the slowdown. Okay, now some of you are going, how did we get here? Believe it or not, I know. The glory of this God is that a God over such a universe deigned on one little blue marble to put us. 
and for us to share in the image of God. Now, I know some of you say, well, if the universe is that big, he can't be paying attention to me. No, my friend, what you're thinking about is an idol. Your false God can't do that. The glorious God of Scripture can control the ever-expanding universe while at the same time giving absolute attention to every detail of that universe, including you. At everything you think and everything you do and every word you speak. I hope you feel humbled. I know I do. Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, are basically an exposition, if you will, of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man, excuse me, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. What do we take from this? Man is made in the image of God and made to rule. The cultural mandate established. Submit, bring the planet into submission. Man is for a little while lower in power than angels, but he's ultimately be crowned with glory as he fulfills his purpose. The Lord has a destiny for mankind. Right while now, lower than the angels. It's a temporary condition. But if this is the declared destiny, why aren't we fulfilling it? Single sentence, end of verse 8. Humanity's destiny delayed. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to it. Though everything is subject to man, we don't see everything subjected. And the reason is the fall. Sin enters the world through it, death through sin. Death passes upon all men for all of sin. We hide from the very creator who made us. We run from him out of fear. We seek autonomy that we run our own lives and nobody's going to tell us what to do or how we should live. John MacArthur, because all mankind fell in Adam, because he lost his kingdom and his crown, we do not see the earth subject to man. Man fell to the bottom and the earth under the evil one now rules man. But you see, this talks to us as well about the future. We know that rather than ruling, humanity has basically abused the world. We can't even rule ourselves. But it's a reminder to us that the gospel comes with not just individual redemption. It does do that. If you're not a Christian, if you turn to the Lord and say, I repent of my sin, I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, He will save you. That is real. But the redemption that we have is larger than that. Romans 8. Verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. 
for the creation wails with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, that is the creation didn't want this, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons. My friends, the perceived chaos in the world around us should not cause us to doubt the veracity of the gospel message or the work of the last Adam. Okay, the fall messes it all up. And the whole thing of being a little lower than the angels is now hugely amplified because while Adam and Eve were in the unfallen state, yet a little lower than the angels, the fall was a plunge. An absolute unmitigated disaster. And the only way that changes is the last Adam has come. The world is flawed and fallen. Still one human being has fulfilled the purpose for which he was created. And that's the next portion. We have considered... Humanity's destiny declared a little lower than the angels, but made for dominion. We've seen human, humanity's destiny delayed. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Finally, is there any hope? If we've lost so much, how can it be regained? Humanity's destiny restored. Look at verses 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The author is wanting his readers to read the scripture according to the internal storyline to see Christ as the fulfillment and climax of the story. We don't see man reigning as he should. We see man battling for authority. We see man plunged into chaos and darkness. We see everything as just an absolute mess in so many ways. But we also see him. Who's the him? Jesus. First time the author is going to use the name Jesus is right here. Jesus. Savior, made lower than the angels. That is, this Jesus shared our humanity and did what Adam didn't. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Christian, follow what I'm saying to you? Here's what we're supposed to be. Here's what we turned into. 
And here's how we get back. And you get back only through seeing him. This Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. How is it that he is crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. Christ is now reigning. He is already in authority. He is already exalted. We should honor the coronation of the last Adam. Oh, Christian, hear me when I say this. Don't think there's a day coming when Jesus shall reign. Yes, but Jesus reigns right now. Well, look at all the bad stuff. He reigns. And he reigns until he puts all of his enemies as a footstool under his feet. And that first is us. You are an enemy. And he not only captured you, he changed you. So that you're no longer an enemy. In fact, you're part of the family. You get in on the inheritance. This is glorious hope, but it comes because of his suffering. First the cross, then the crown. First the suffering, then the glory. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It is God who takes the initiative. Christ is our substitute. Christ then restores us. Now folks, I don't know what to tell you if you think about the future. You say, well, so what's life going to be like in heaven or on a new earth? What's it going to be like? And here's what I can tell you. Not much. Little. The little is huge, but it ain't a lot. We're not given a whole lot of detail. I have, well, what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to be bored. Are you so devoid of imagination and so ignorant of the text? First, he's going to change us finally. Right? We fail. He regenerates us. We have the life of Christ in us, the power of the Spirit. We live under a new covenant. We're connected to him vitally. We pray to him. We're told to call him our father. But you see, folks, when glorification happens, here, here's, here's the best part of glorification. You will no longer have sin in you. And you will no longer be a selfish jerk. And some of you excel at that. He shall change us. The beatific vision when we see him come in glory, we are changed. I, I hear people, well, I'm just happy there's no more death and no more sickness. Amen. I'm in favor of that too. But you know the whole thing of no sin, sickness and no death is because sin has been eradicated. In fact, not just eradicated, you are going to be changed to such a degree that you will never, ever be able to sin again. Some of you aren't nearly happy enough about that. Never, ever 
sin again. This is for us in Christ who takes the suffering. Tom Schreiner said it this way, the rule of sin over humanity has been dethroned through the death of Jesus as he took upon himself the penalty we deserve for our transgressions. Folks, do you understand what this ought to do for us and to us? You, every, every one of these people you run into, and boy, they're everywhere, aren't they? That, that one that annoyed you at Walmart yesterday or the day before because they took forever in the line or couldn't seem to make up their mind or seemed they believed the entire world pivoted around them. That's a person made in the image of God. They're broken, they're messed up, but so are you. That neighbor that you find so difficult and annoying, made in the image of God, a little lower than the angels. They're going to live somewhere forever. Where shall that be? Shall it be everlasting death? Conscious torment? Or shall it be in the kingdom? Those children whom you love so dearly, who also make you crazy. Image bearers. That spouse who was wonderful for a while. And I know you say, well, they're still wonderful. A lot more messed up than I thought they were, but they're still wonderful. What I'm trying to convey to you folks is we should never be dismissive of any human being. Of all people that ought to get this right, it ought to be us. They may be messed up. They may be a traveling sideshow of a mess. But shall we bring to them the hope of their destiny restored? Let me read from Schaefer again. Human beings are wonderful because they're made in God's image. Schreiner goes on to say, in a world where human life is cheap, and is often discarded casually or destroyed brutally, the author of Hebrews reminds us that human beings are the crown of creation. And see, brothers and sisters, this does impact how we work in this world. It's why it tears at our souls and our hearts that somebody could just callously destroy an infant in utero or post-birth. But it also ought to break our hearts that young people have so little guidance and so little hope that they will casually take firearms and kill one another. It ought to stun us that war happens. We hear an individual has died, and that's a tragedy. We hear that 100,000 have died, and it's a statistic. We just can't wrap our head around it. Folks, it ought to grieve us, but the grief also should come with this glorious joy. There is answers for this. There's an answer. His name is Jesus. Believe in Him. 
Later, the author is going to say, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which, so e which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So I, I love how the author does this. He says, we don't see man where he's supposed to be. We don't see him exalted. We do see him. And I'm here to tell you that most of the people to whom he's writing probably never laid eyes on Jesus physically. Looking to Jesus. How do you look to somebody that you never had an opportunity to observe as they lived? You look through what he's taught. You look through the apostles and their lens. You look at the witness of Scripture and you look at the one who loved you and gave himself for you, who tasted death for all his people. Hmm. So, my friend, have you submitted to the king? Has your destiny been recovered? Christian, do you hold on to this hope? I don't. Anybody besides me, you get discouraged at the fight? You just, good night. I've done this for how many years? And I still do this, and I still do that, and I fail in this way, and I fail. I just, ah, who shall deliver me? Do you hear the hope? <laughs> you're a son, you're a daughter of the Most High. And one day He is going to exalt you in a way that is beyond your comprehension. And He'll not only exalt you, He'll make you fit for the exaltation. You'll never get higher than where He wants you to be in this new age. The glory of this, my friends, is the misery of this life that we live in the face of suffering and trouble and failure and roadblocks and dashed dreams dashed hopes is this world was never meant to be the final destination anyway we see him even the son of god made a little lower than the angels and now exalted so that they worship him and he has brought us with him Let's pray.